Hello, and welcome to Hyped, the podcast for the culturally curious that turns a critical eye on some of the most hyped books, plays, films, music, and TV shows of recent years. Join us as we work out where these cultural trends have come from and what they reveal about modern society. I'm Zoe Strimple, columnist, dating expert, and historian of gender in modern Britain. And I'm Tom Stammers, a historian of modern France and a general cultural glutton with a weakness for all things 19th century. Zoe and I have been consuming and talking about culture ever since we were at university, uh, which now feels so long ago that Christopher Marlowe was the playwright of the age when we were going to the theatre. That's right. I think you uh, managed to get front row seats to the first ever Dr. Faustus. (laughs) Today, we are talking about the state of London theatre. We are doing so because we've recently actually finally seen some stuff Mm. that was pretty good. In fact, it was such a relief to see something good that we probably thought that what we saw was better than it was. But the contrast with what we've put ourselves through for the last few years uh, is is the source of interest for us today. So in short, we feel, or I certainly feel, that as wokeness, to use the crude and obvious term, has kind of gathered speed and co-opted institutions, including the arts, especially the arts, which tend to have progressive tendencies anyway, but those have been sort of um, taken over and distorted by by this orthodoxy. What has actually been performed and the way it's been performed has tended to be didactic and political and really quite painful. Uh, so it's been interesting to see that, you know, it hasn't just been like a fringy loony thing um, where, you know, actors are notoriously you know, lefty in their own time and, you know, stage managers say this or that, it really started to have what I felt was uh, like a real tangible effect on the actual experience of going to the theatre. And it was beginning to feel like London theatre, which used to be the absolute pride and glory of this country, was becoming like just basically painful and something to be avoided, like steer clear. Um, Tom, you're always a much more kind of forgiving person who looks at things more holistically than me. How much do you agree with my sense that that politics had had destroyed theatre? And it, it just in a funny way, you know, one of our first hypes was about Leopoldstadt right before the pandemic. And we were extremely disappointed with Tom Stoppard's efforts there. It wasn't 100% because of woke, but it was to do with there was a kind of didacticism. And in a way, it makes sense that we're bookending that play with with this discussion, I think. Thank you for describing me as more generous, Zoe. I think that's true. Um, I, I have to say, let's flag up the fact that you wrote a brilliant article on this subject um, that I do think was a really good provocation that mapped what's happening in, in the kind of theatre world broadly. Whether I put it all at the door of wokeness, whatever that might be, that's where we probably disagree. Um, to talk a little bit about the structural stuff before we talk about the politics, I guess in general, one big problem in London at the moment is the sort of irresistible rise of the musical which seems to be the only kind of golden ticket in terms of commercial theatre. And unfortunately, it is gobbling up more and more of the West End. Uh, I like musicals, you know, I like a campy classic, you know, and I like musicals particularly of a certain vintage, like musicals pre-1980, Tom is there with bells on. I am worried, however, though, that we've ended up with this kind of, I think, pretty superficial, um, very kind of pop music, rock music inflected musical that now is probably well over half of what any London theatre is showing. So with any given year, I'd say there are probably only 
six or seven good straight plays a year. Does that seem fair, Zoe? It seems like if you're looking for kind of quality straight drama, you've maybe got two or three choices at any time in a in a season. Yeah, I mean, so that's, that's, that's possibly true. But I think, you know, you mentioned my article. My article's complaint wasn't that there are too many musicals and that things are therefore too superficial. It really was that the plays that there are and the musicals that there are have been yeah. destroyed by politics. So... Um, you know, I suppose it's interesting you're saying that that seems to be a bit of a separate problem, but surely you must agree that some of the things you've sat through have been sort of politically didactic in a way that they wouldn't have been before. I mean, the, there's um, the thing I saw at the Donmar about Mary Seacole, which was just ended up in a like shriek, in a kind of yelling monologue berating the audience for being racist. There was something at the Globe on Joan of Arc, which was about Joan being trans. Um, there's a musical about the Pankhursts, which again had, I think, you know, it was it was all Sylvia all black the old cast. Um, yeah, exactly, Sylvia Pankhurst. Sorry, I mean, are you do you are you really saying, Tom, that you don't think a form of identity politics that is about you know Britain as or the, the about colonialism and you know, repressed, downtrodden, marginal groups has not become the kind of defining topic of theatre. No, I think you're. I think you are entirely right about some of that. Um, I just think that there's probably less plays around, so it's easy for us to sort of romanticise. And I do look back nostalgically for the golden days when you used to go to the theatre 10 years ago and you felt that you were spoilt for choice, you know, that there was a great Schiller on here, there was a brilliant Middleton on there, there was a kind of fantastic Ibsen revival happening over there. It seems to me like the corpus of like drama has dramatically shrunk. Um, and I think it's striking that even, you know, Shakespeare, the RSC's great hit at the moment is the adaptation of My Neighbour Totoro, you know, the Studio Ghibli Japanese animated movie. That's the thing that's brilliant. And it's, and it's doing so well, partly because, again, it's a spectacle. Um, and so there's something about the kind of the, the way that the kind of box office is distorting things so there are less straight plays. There's something about theatre expected to be a kind of sensorium and maybe kind of, you know, the musical has helped sort of feed into that, that people want the big glitzy night at the theatre or they want amazing effects like Ocean at the End of the Lane or they want brilliant puppetry. And I'm not sneering at any of those things, but the amount of straight drama is limited. I certainly feel that there's not enough revivals of old classics. And I should say that the thing that we went to see that we loved, um, the John Gabriel Borkman, was an Ibsen that is hardly ever performed. And that's why it was a revelation. It was a complete thrill to see this thing that hasn't been staged in London for quite a while um, and was genuinely complex. And the beauty of really great dramatic writing, as you say, Zoe, is that you don't really know whose side you're on and you don't really know um, you know what you're meant to think at the end of it. It was it was kind of beautifully multi-layered and ambivalent, and you know, in some ways uh, unsettling. And you had to properly go and think about it, as we did. Whereas so much of contemporary theatre, I think, is just slotting into quite predictable identity politics positions. And I think you know there isn't the intellectual firepower um, in a lot of contemporary writing. And I think it's interesting just to go to what you were saying. It's also that I think people are struggling to write good plays about the present. I wonder if there's something about the writing that has been successful, you know, some of it has been period stuff. You know, Hilary Mantel's adaptations of her novels obviously were really successful. Um, you know, you might think 
James Graham is doing all of these plays um, that have a kind of historical flavour to them. They're best of enemies at the moment about Gore Vidal and William Buckley. But there's something about we're getting better at using the theatre to explore issues of a previous generation or many previous centuries. I haven't really seen a play that's been able to deal with the present in a compelling way um, for a very long time. Can you say, yeah. I mean, apart from maybe J Jerusalem, Zoe, would you say that the Jeff Butterworth was the last right. state of the nation play? I hated that play. It didn't resonate with me at all. But but you know, I did. But then that doesn't. You know, I'm I'm even I am out of sync sometimes. Um, it's interesting that you say, Tom, that the that we're good at dramatizing the past, potentially mm. what we write in the present we are. But I still think the past. You know, this is what something you fa we face as historians on such a serious level that even the past. You know, I suppose it always has been redeployed and used as propaganda to serve present sensibilities but on the stage I really feel that that's happening as well so I'm, I'm interested that you think it is and I mean uh Mary Seacole you know Mary Seacole's mm -hmm. a historical figure that was that was a huge harangue about race and racism and uh, white supremacy and all that stuff um it even had pop shot pot shots at the figure of the Karen you know the the, the entitled middle-class white woman which is a really sexist figure. Um, so I, I was sort of like, oh, for God's sake, can't we just have something that depicts the past that isn't a lesson? Equally, even productions that are, you know, ostensibly old plays that, that there isn't that much you can do about it. They even still manage to inject presentism into them. I mean, I actually quite enjoyed the recent production of The Crucible at the National only because there's no escaping that Arthur Miller, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a substantial play. But even there, you know, there there was there was a little bit of it. Uh, the Wuthering Heights at the National was like absurdly bad. Uh, it turned Heathcliff into a race warrior. Um, you know, Kathy as well. Kathy was a banshee in that. Yeah, Kathy was awful as well. And so there's that. So I I just I don't know. I think it's worrying. I, to me, it feels like there's been no outlet. Um, and I but I completely agree. You know, no escape really. Whether it's past or present, everything comes down to race and perhaps something to do with trans. I mean, I say everything, not literally everything. And I have to say, Tom, does a little part of you think that John Gabriel Borkman perhaps isn't like the most amazing play ever and there's a reason it's not normally uh, performed, but because for the first time in years, we were offered something that wasn't about race uh, or trans or gender in, a, in the way that it usually, you know, it wasn't about sexual harassment particularly um even though you know the, the core interest about men and women was there don't you think we were just sitting there in like gobsmacked gratitude because we just haven't had that for so long i mean wasn't that part of I, it i think yes you, and i think there's say... certainly something about about gravitas as well and there is something to be said about what's happening in terms of the profile of actors um you know Johnny Abra Borkman, in, in a way, was like a production from a different era in that it yeah. was just a chance to relish these kind of magnificent classically trained actors. You know, let's have Simon Russell Beale and Claire Higgis and Leah Williams deploying all of their firepower. You know, and it was it felt, um, you know, perhaps a little reverent to be there with these great actors. Um, but it was brilliant. But I think we have discovered, unfortunately, and this comes back to bigger issues in the sector, that in order to draw audiences in, sometimes there are actors being cast who are brilliant on TV, but who don't work on the stage, or people who have you know, got a celebrity profile, but are not actually really capable of carrying a production. I, I do think there's also um, issues there about, about how casting in some ways has often 
been a little bit off and that we're giving people platforms that they that they don't really deserve. All I'd say about the race things, area, I suppose, is that there are both brilliant plays about race and then there are some really bad ones. And so I don't think that the topic itself has to be a snore or, um, you know, and I do wonder if there's been a sort of like pre-BLM, post-BLM divide. I mean, one of the most provocative things I've seen, and I remember being one of the best things I've seen in the past five, ten years, was this play, An Octoroon, at the Dorfman by Brandon Jacobs Jenkins, the um, African-American playwright, that was, you know, exactly, was all about race and was about the creative repurposing of a 19th century melodrama to explore what race meant to the Victorians, but in the most brilliant, ludic, surreal, you know, it, you know, it was not pious in any sense. Every kind of identity was being scrambled in it or was being kind of jumbled and turned upside down. And so I think there can be plays about brace that are bracing and fun. I think the problem, as you suggest, is the more sanctimonious kind of sermonizing version of theatre, um, which is a snore, which is a snore. But, it, but all I would say is that politics itself is maybe not the enemy of theatre, in that some of the greatest playwrights of the 20th century have been deeply politically engaged. You think about Brecht, you know, I really love Brecht. Um, but for Brecht, you know, being a very engaged kind of Marxist and a communist, did not get in the way of writing really interesting theatre. And it's important to think about how does he manage to, to square that. And so politics isn't necessarily the enemy and presentism is in a way a complement to a great play. And um, yes, it can be really annoying to see people do a really, you know, there was this really lazy production of Antigone at Regent's Park recently that modelled the Creon character on Pretty Patel. Uh, but in a way it's a complement to Greek theatre that you can imagine playing it 500 different ways. You know, that amazing Robert I. Corestire that we saw recently, Zoe, actually, not that recently, but like five years ago, six years ago, showed that some of the very first dramatic works we have can still feel astonishingly kind of perceptive and relevant, depending on what you do with them. So presentism will always happen when a play has that kind of richness within it, when it is kind of capable of it. So much of the contemporary drama we're looking at, because it's making a point about right now, has no shelf life, it has no posterity. I can't imagine the Mary Seacole piece being re-performed in 20 years time and anyone saying, oh wow, you know, it still speaks to us. Or let's think about how it can be reimagined. They just feel like flat um, footnotes to contemporary politics. You know, they just feel like tedious um, commentaries on, our, on the headlines in the press. They're not something that will age. Whereas, you know, all the great plays tend to have a little bit of an afterlife and that afterlife means that they will be reimagined and, you know, that they're, they're able to kind of, um, you know, persist. Uh, to think about the politics, though, do you think this issue about politics getting in the way of the theatre, do you think this is a this is just a kind of recent trend to do with the sort of nature of identity politics? Or is this something more broadly that like the moment that a writer has got a strong ideological position, the theatre is in trouble or like the, 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 the kind of the, the ability of theatre to be a kind of space for, I don't know, critical exploration and becomes compromised. I think it's interesting. I think that you're absolutely right that, you know, Brecht and what have you, strong political positions do not negate a playwright from writing really, really interesting, evocative, probing stuff. I think that what we've seen, and this must tie into the whole, you know, superficiality of what's actually on offer, like it has to be singing and dancing or else nobody wants it. And the sort of suspicion of the canon is that there's been also a kind of crude cruding, crudifying effect or a kind of increased crudeness perhaps in um, in the entire landscape of, of what it even means to think about politics. 
So because of the way that I think, um, you know, political correctness and identity politics have fed into these, you know, this package of, of orthodoxies that we call woke, um, the, the way that's happened, I think, has been quite authoritarian in the in the dynamics. So it really is, there's only one way to think about these things, and there's only one subject, um, and that is marginalized, oppressed people being done over by the cis, straight, white man kind of thing. And I, it sounds bizarre to even have to say that, but that does seem, that underpins so much of what I've mm -hmm. seen. So I think that unfortunately, if politics has in the past been a really interesting and important aspect of what it is to write interesting plays, the way politics have become, say, cultural politics, or the way the way that, that it's all fanned out in the last five, 10 years, um, you know, you could say Me Too, although the, the cause of Me Too is totally, you know, worthy, was the beginning of that shift in in political sensibility and and the whole dynamic of the way we debate politics and 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 also I think that so I think that was the beginning of a moment when perhaps playwrights started to reflect that but I also think theaters started to embrace it so there's this kind of pincer movement where you've got the playwrights responding to that with a kind of flattened crude uh, mm. interpretation of of a political of, of what it is to be political so that it just sounds like a kind of politics 101 what you should think sort of thing but then also the theaters themselves I mean you just have to look at what they're doing with their toilets you know the amount of money they've spent renaming them like urinals and cubicles which makes everyone uncomfortable and is like or not everyone but like 99 percent mm. of theater goers are just like what the hell that's what they're spending their money on so you can see how the theaters themselves are embracing a politics in a way that isn't even about the, the types of plays they're even choosing to put on. And I think they're, you know, it, it's just saturated every single layer of, of the creative industries in a way that I think is concerning. And I, and I think that the, 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 the kind of proof that even more interesting bits of hot potatoes of the present moment, um, like let's say the white homophobic white uh, working class, you know, even that's done in a didactic, boring haranguing cliched way so this, the whole my whole you know article for the spectator and the edifice of my whole argument came from or rather the inspiration for my for my the animus for my frustration <laughs> and desire to analyze this came from watching the uh theater the, the theater version of the edouard louis louis book which was a bestseller how i killed my father who yeah. killed my father who killed my father the father by the way doesn't even die and this is supposed to be class. It's supposed to be life in Northern France, whatever. It was so embarrassing at the end. Literally, he's standing up and like you saying, the criminals who killed my father, who the father's not dead, should be named, like, you know, <laughs> Macron, Chirac, you know, and, and I was like, I just couldn't believe how 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 embarrassing it was. It was it was so there's that, or there's the sort of you know, Jews in their own words. Even Jonathan Friedland, like one of the great sophisticated columnists of the country, is is writing mm. stuff that is basically like a news like a GCSE students attempt to write a summary of the news over the last year on anti-semitism it's just like what is going on this is this is not it's not the fault of politics it's the fault of something's gone wrong with like sophistication which is why when we saw when you and I went to see you know a couple of the interesting thing is that just after I saw that Edouard Louis thing which I saw because actually you know some people recommended it to me it was also it also obviously went down incredibly well in the theater. People were loving it. It got four stars in the FT, et cetera, et cetera. You know, after that, and I'd given up hope 
that's when we saw John Gabriel Borgman. And since then, I've seen two more excellent things. Tammy Fayette, the Almeida, and The Doctor, and your recommendation, both of those, Tom. So something, you know, maybe something is shifting. But yeah, I, I don't know. What do, you, what do you make of that whole... I mean, I'm curious, Tom, what you make of actually what's happening in the theatres themselves. Well, after John Gabriel Borkman, obviously, we, we talked to Claire uh, Higgins, is it? Claire Higgins, which was amazing. And she said how, you know, she the, the National Theatre had... I mean, this is probably supposed to be off the record, but let's just say... You know, she she's a bit she was a bit bewildered by what's happened to standards, um, mm. absolute standards, because it's all been subsumed into identity politics, you know, kickboxing. And she said, look, the National Theatre is not supposed to be a community centre. Um, so what do you make of all that? So, yeah, there's a lot. There's a lot. There's a I, what I'd say about the I mean, I'll come to the community thing in a minute. Um, I think what was interesting about the plays that we have seen that have been brilliant recently, like The Doctor, um, would that they turn some of the identity politics on their head. I mean, what's so clever about that is it plays around with the kind of audience's probably sense of exhaustion at how kind of predictable much kind of theatre is and says, OK, let's let's give you the kind of positions, the kind of the political moves that you expect, but let's make them come out of mouths and come from actors that you're struggling to read. So it it was just a kind of masterstroke, really, in, in sort of blowing the whole genre up. Equally, Tammy Faye, I thought, was really clever because it did something different with the musical. Yes, it had the singing and the dancing and the ritzy and the heartfelt stuff. But it also, weirdly, is a story about the rise of the, Ameri you know, the American right and kind of evangelical religion. And there was something often kind of, you know, tragic, but also, you know, campy, but also subversive about these songs about actually pretty complicated and dark politics. And I would say that the recent production of Cabaret also showed how you can take the musical and make it do things that jar with what you expect the musical to be and that that can all be brilliant. Um, in terms of what's going wrong with the, the theatres, yes, the situation in, in London, I think, is, is in decline, but you only have to spend you know, a few minutes browsing the offering in the provincial theatres around this country to see how kind of corrupt and you know, polluted the whole the whole system is, uh, which I know sounds quite alarmist. I mean, there are still a couple of pockets of excellence, but by and large, the touring theatre, the rep theatre is is dead. It's sort of washed up London musicals that are kind of whizzing around for the upteenth time with kind of soap stars in. It's a it's a pretty sad state of affairs. There's very little outside of places like Chichester. There's very little um, in some of the northern theatres. There's very little kind of new and um, straight drama coming through. And I think what Claire Higgis was talking about, yes, she was concerned about the disappearance of the outreach that groups like the RSC used to do, you know, and that they still want to do. But you used to be able to be a kid, as she was describing, uh, going to the theatre, I think, you know, in Newcastle or in Leeds and go and see some of the finest actors in the land doing this difficult repertoire. And I remember her telling us that she saw Judy Dench as Lady Macbeth and it was a transformative experience for her as a young woman. Um, and she was suggesting, and I think she's entirely right, that those kind of things only happen if you invest in excellence and you believe in excellence. And, um, you know, it's not about trying to make theatre that suits what the audience already want, but it's saying we believe in this particular kind of writing or this particular group of actors or this particular kind of production, and we're going to make an audience for it through our conviction and through our belief. And yes, of course, that's difficult to pull off commercially, um, but too much of theatre has instead been about satisfying or speaking to the concerns of the audience. You know, well, I, th I think she wasn't talking about that at all. 
I think she was, she was talking about that as well, but she was also saying the National Theatre is making itself into a community centre, which means that it's abandoned its belief that there is that there are standards of acting and that there is excellence of repertoire. Yeah, that those things. Have that's to be about woke. Her point, because that's what we were talking about. Her point wasn't that it's satisfying the audience. Her point is that it's ignoring the audience. She was an audience member. Mm. Her point was that it's theaters have completely, I mean, I, I think this question of what audiences want is really interesting because the audiences don't necessarily want this didactic crap um, right. that's telling them they're racist. They don't want it, they leave. You know, Mark Lawson talks yeah. a lot about the epilogue where they, they they harangue the audience about, you know, they tell them stay so that you can listen to what, have a, another, lesson on what this play is about the director is going to do a q a and people just flee the theaters so i don't yeah. think it's all the case and i think when she was talking about community center tom she's not talking she what what you're saying suggests that she wants a community center i.e outreach which it would be great yeah, well, she what she does talking about is that she's is that the theaters are saying we need to represent all the you know, exactly represent again our audience it's not for audience. It's we need our actors. We need forty percent of actors to be this color and that creed, and we need our and to talk to the public in language they understand about things that they're already interested in. No, I think they're not interested. I don't, think, I don't think it's. I don't think there is any tension. The national hasn't interest. been doing well. I don't think that's at all. The case. It's not at all the case that the audiences are lapping up what the national has had to offer. They haven't. No one has been. It's about that's the whole problem with the ideology is that it's actually come unhinged from what people want. Most ordinary people would prefer a play that you know a good play that you and I would think was good. Her point is that the standards have dropped because they are prioritizing their own you know, political correctness over and above excellence and what audiences want. That's what we were, that's what Claire and I were talking about when you, while you were talking history with Simon Russell Beale. No, but then she also was talking about going to see these plays and leagues. And to me, that it's really important these two things are kept together. By believing in excellence, you don't abandon the sense that there is, that the theatre has a kind of ability to reach other audiences. I think the problem is that excellence has been abandoned for the idea, and this is happening right across the art sector, that like, let's make the gallery more like a drop-in centre for kids, let's turn the National Gallery into a creche, you know, let's make these places kind of just giant gift shops with loads of like craft activities going on in them. I mean, this is this is part of a bigger sort of a cultural democratisation that is that I think is deeply ideological, as you say, Zoe, that is about abandoning the idea that these that these institutions, you know, are are pr protecting a rarefied thing, and that they ha that they also have a responsibility towards that craft, no. or that thing, yes. or that quality. Um, yes, but I don't think I don't think you I think you can have a crash and a and a huge gift shop if you let people interpret the Hogarths in the museum as they want. But the problem isn't the gift shop and the crash. The problem is the signage that tells you that you have to interpret the Hogarth as, a, as an example of Western white supremacy. <laughs> the problem isn't that the National Theatre has lots of you know nice things for young people to sit around and drink coffee in. The problem is that the plays are boring and didactic. That's what she was one, one, You wonder how those two things start to poison each other, Zoe, is all I would say. Hmm. You know, that's the idea that you can keep them in separate boxes, that when you start running cultural institutions on box office principles, um, and making well, them unfriendly, making them accessible. And obviously, access is important, but I sometimes no. think it can lead to a kind of uh, of abandoning. Um, a I agree, but I think I think that this is the thing, Tom. I'm pretty sure that there's two conflicting impulses at play. 
yes, there's the box office thing is at play when it comes to the crashes, the coffee shops, the shop, the gift shops, and the musicals, perhaps. But an anti-box office thing is at play when it comes to ramming race politics yeah. on people's throats. So I think it's that kind of it, both of them are bad and they're also self-defeating and contradictory. And you might as well focus on excellence because that's probably going to give you equally good returns, um, even exactly. if you put some people off. And I think I think this question of whether people can quote unquote handle. Handle, handle. Excellence. You know, they yeah. hit, hit them with something obscure and see, as you say, if the, and I totally believe in this. So that if the actors believe in it, if the director believes in it, you can make a public believe in it too. Like I actually think hmm. it's about people like to be challenged, but, but I just wonder if the, if the love of musicals, I mean, do you not think that, you know, do you think, and I think we've touched on this before on hype. Do you think that there's a problem with, you know, people's appetite for the canon? Like you mentioned, you know, an Ibsen or a, or a, a Beckett or, you know, anything like that. Um, or, or a Marlowe or any anything a Middleton um, do, do you think people you know can't can't cope with those things anymore I, I don't think they can't really so so the question as to why proper old plays aren't put on as much yeah what, what, I what? think that's got I think you're right to say that's got much more to do with people thinking that theatre has to be relevant mm. and that theatre has to be contemporary um, and you know one way you do that is to like reimagine the classics and so you you kind of put a new spin on classic text and some of that can be absolutely you know thrilling like there's no doubt some of the best things i've seen have been reimagined reworkings of classics without any doubt or you just commission loads of new writing and i think that's where i would agree with you i think there has been a big problem in the past five years of thinking gosh we don't have representation of particular groups so we are now just going to open you know we're going to make sure that those plays get staged and those voices get heard and you know it's not doing any favor to some of those playwrights because they're still too junior like it's often a problem i think that they're, they're probably things being rushed through you know the clinic at the almeida was a, you know absolutely disastrous you know it was just a disastrous play and it's you know by someone who has some promise but probably is under massive pressure to have to pump out another play because you know we want to hear your voice and so you're not doing a favor i think to young writers who need a little bit more time to develop and to grow mm. and to to be mm. cultivated and so on so i, I do think that the programming pendulum has swung far too much towards young relevant 21st century which often feels you know guess what young writers haven't yet you know soaked themselves in a world of experience and often struggle to find their voice and find their subject all the great playwrights of the past have a kind of signature set of issues or a signature way of writing you think about pinter you know whichever pinter you watch you know it's a pinter. Yes, he's got different, you know, variations or whatever, but, you know, you know you're watching a pinter. Equally with Stoppard, equally with, um, you know, with Beckett, as you say. And I think in the past 20 years, it's hard to think of a playwright who's been able to develop that kind of signature voice or like a signature set of preoccupations. And that that does say something maybe about the the, the kind of the, the problem um, or the kind yes, of problem maybe... James Graham is one, maybe Mike Bartlett is one, although Mike Bartlett, again, it just feels like it's a commentary on the headlines rather than an ability, right. as Brecht would do, to be able to allegorise it, to step that, back from it, think about it philosophically. Is this to do with the market then? I mean, in, in the sense that these, you know, these these youngsters have to, have to, you know, there aren't, there isn't so much national funding, obviously arts funding, mm -hmm. they have to sell the seats, but they also have to, they can't, they have to always be sure they're writing something that isn't going to, end up being rejected because they're worried it'll cause a political 
outroar, uh, uproar, you know, mm -hmm. that people are very afraid now of being insensitive. And that's a huge curb on creativity. So a playwright can't write something fabulous that just bursts out of their pen because they now have to worry, well, will some theaters now not even consider this because it's too great of a risk? Um, and I think that's a, that must be a huge problem, uh, which I don't think there, I simply don't think that was the case before. The last thing I'll say about the politics of theatre is levelling up is a very dangerous threat. Um, that there might be all sorts of good intentions and positive things about levelling up when we think about infrastructure, but you only have to look at what the Arts Council has recently decreed vis-a-vis, uh, -vis, you know, funding for the Domar now is being switched off or is being sort of radically cut. Um, English National Opera, as you might have seen, has now been told that it has to reinvent itself as a touring company, maybe based in Manchester rather than in London. Um, the idea that you're going to be able to kind of make 100 cultural flowers bloom by stamping on things in London, that suddenly you're going to have this efflorescence of cultural forms in Oldham or in Bolton is for the birds. And it comes back to this thing about believing in excellence. London is actually a hub of artistic excellence. And we are in danger of choking off what is really one of the, you know, as I say, landmark cultural uh, forms in this country and a reason that people come to the city and you know it's the envy of the world we are in danger through this rhetoric of redistribution and serving bigger publics and reaching new audiences of completely diluting and destroying some of the institutions that actually cradle and support art which at the beginning isn't very commercial like you know but nonetheless is important because of its intrinsic qualities and needs to be protected oh i couldn't agree more amen unfortunately we need to bring this discussion to a close uh, it's it's such rich pickings i hope we we revisit it and we can kind of keep updates on what's happening because i think theater especially in the uk is a really important barometer of what's going on across politics you know uh, what even westminster the arts entertainment people's sensibilities and so on uh, but join us next time for a discussion of the latest series of the crown which we will do when tom gets back from egypt and if he can find a way to combine something to do with the pyramids luxor and aswan with the crown which i think he will be able to because there's actually an egyptian slant in the crown uh that would be great muhammad al-fayed here we come <laughs>